Welcome back to Lux Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, Developing Disciples, as we study the latter portion of John's Gospel. This Sunday, we study John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, as we learn what it means to be on mission with the Holy Spirit. In these final moments of Jesus' last night with His disciples, we find Him preparing them for their mission, but He promises to equip them with the Holy Spirit who will reveal the world's sin, God's righteousness, and the reality of judgment. We hope that you are blessed, challenged, and encouraged by what you hear. If we are honest with one another, if you are honest with yourself, if you are honest with me, there are probably times as we talk about this, as we think about the responsibility that's set before us in Scripture that we uh, feel a little bit overwhelmed. In fact, I think there's actually only three responses that we would probably give to this idea of living on mission. One is very simply obedience, right? We hear it and we do it. Uh, the second one is this feeling of being overwhelmed, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's felt like over the last few months or whatever the case may be, like you're uh, sort of drinking from a fire hydrant, right? The information from God's Word is, is just coming out, it's coming out. There's responsibilities, there's, there's all of these things that you're learning about what it means to be a disciple. The last few weeks, just about being an abiding disciple, it seems overwhelming, right? Then I think the third response is one that's more of uh, maybe confusion or doubt, right? It's the response of, okay, well, this sounds nice, but is this really my responsibility, right? Does this really apply to me? And so I think those probably are the, the three most common responses. And I suppose that uh, the good news is, if that's the case, if you've been uh, dealing with a feeling of overwhelm, uh, being overwhelmed or a feeling of, of doubt or just uh, really unsure about, uh, about what God's Word's calling you to do or your responsibility in it, the good news is that you're probably not alone. There are plenty of people who struggle with these very same emotions or feelings or responses. But that also doesn't have to be the case. In fact, I believe this morning we begin to see one of the great answers to this problem of response in John's Gospel. I believe with all of my heart that one of the reasons, maybe one of the most prominent reasons, that most modern day Christians fail to live on mission in a way that is consistent with what Scripture teaches is because of a failure to properly rely on the Holy Spirit. A failure to properly rely on the Holy Spirit. So that feeling of being overwhelmed, I think, really results back to a failure to properly rely on the Holy Spirit. That feeling of being unsure or unconvinced of your own responsibility is a failure to rely fully on the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going we're to take a little bit of time and we are going to dive into the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an abiding disciple. Now, frankly, everything that we've talked about for the last three weeks now... Uh, has has really been leading to this point, right? We've talked about abiding disciples produce fruit. Abiding disciples love like Christ. And then last week, we learned that uh, abiding disciples, right, will ultimately be rejected by the world, that the world will hate Christians because uh, they are in Christ. Now, all of these things, 
Uh, being able to produce fruit, being able to love like Christ, being able to understand and respond to the world's hatred. All of these things are only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, I think this is something that's going to become incredibly clear in our passage this morning. So I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 16, we're going to be considering verses 5 through 15. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5 and working down through verse 15. Again, this is really just immediately following this discussion of Jesus being the true vine and the necessity of disciples abiding in the true vine. And then last week he's talking about the world's response. So it was first the disciples' response to the vine and then the world's response to the disciples. And Jesus picks up in verse 5 and He says this, But now I go my way to Him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness, because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you in all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. And He will show you things to come. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are Mine. Therefore said I, that He shall take of Mine, and shall show it unto you. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe and confess with all of our heart Lord, that this is indeed Your Word, inerrant, infallible, and fully inspired. Lord, that it is profitable for everything that we could possibly need. So Lord, as we take this Word and we seek to rightly divide it this morning, God, we lean on the illumination of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, to make the truth of this text real to us, Lord, to make it obvious to us, Lord, to apply it to our hearts and lives so that we might be transformed into the image of Your Son, Jesus. We ask all of this in His precious and holy name. Amen. Now, as we begin to really dissect this passage this morning, we really have to understand, at least remind ourselves, of the mood of this passage. Uh, what, What is the mood of the conversation that Jesus is having with His disciples in this moment? Now, at this point, considering everything that they have seen and heard, right? And, and not just seen and heard over the last three and a half years now. We're talking about everything they have seen and heard just over the last couple of hours, right? The last couple of moments of their time with Jesus. right? I mean, these men, these disciples, they are undoubtedly concerned, um, overwhelmed by the information that's being shared, and, and probably to some extent their, their hearts are really filled with sorrow. Right? Because here, here's the reality of what's just been said. Yeah, there's been some encouraging things, but Jesus has said, hey, I'm leaving you. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going to ultimately die, and then I'm going to leave you. Now, He's made the promise of His return for sure, but uh, what's sticking out to the disciples at this moment, because they still haven't put all the pieces together, right? They still haven't really received this gift of the Spirit that's going to lead them in all understanding, right? That's going to come. They're, they're going to connect all the dots, but they've not totally connected them yet. So Jesus is leaving, and the world is going to hate them. Right? I mean, it's, 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 it's not really the most 
encouraging message that they're probably walking away with, right? It's not the message that Jesus has shared, but this is the point of the message that it's probably safe to assume they were most likely focusing on, right? We even see this in the way Jesus is talking to them and acknowledging their concern and their doubt and their, maybe their fears or even their frustrations, right? Their, their failure to maybe even ask the right questions. But I want you to notice something very important, not only for the disciples' understanding, but also for our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 7. Jesus says, but if I depart, right? But if I go... I will send Him. Him is the Holy Spirit. I will send the Holy Spirit unto you. Right? Very simply, Jesus says, listen, I am going. And it may be concerning to you. You may be fearful. Your hearts may be burdened. But here's what I want you to know. If I go, not as maybe I will go, but if I go and when I go, I will send the Spirit. I will send Him to you. Now, this, this phrase, just this simple phrase, introduces really this absolutely essential fact, this essential piece of understanding uh, for us when it comes, when it comes to understanding uh, being disciples that are truly abiding in Christ and that are truly on mission. The fact is simply this. The mission of God is accomplished. Listen to this. The mission of God is accomplished by the Spirit of God in the people of God. It's a very important statement. The mission of God is accomplished by the Spirit of God. Okay, if we just stop right there, that, we're already lifting burden, right? It's not that the people of God accomplish the mission of God. No, the, the mission of God is actually accomplished by the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God accomplishes the mission of God through the people of God. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for you and me just very practically on a very personal level? It means that each one of us has a personal, listen, a personal responsibility in the mission of God. The reason we have a personal responsibility in the mission of God is because we have a personal relationship with God through the personal indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit indwells you and I personally as believers, that means we have personal responsibility in the mission of God. Right? We have, a, we have this responsibility not to accomplish it. Right, The responsibility to accomplish the mission of God is the Spirit's. But it's our responsibility to allow the Spirit of God to accomplish the mission of God in and through us. And so what's happening here? It's really this incredible transition of an era. The era of discipleship is beginning in this passage. It's a new era. This era of Christian discipleship. Listen, it couldn't begin. Discipleship could not exist until the Son of God, right? The Lamb of God died, rose again, returned to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit. That's the only way Christian discipleship can exist is when the Holy Spirit has come and has been received by believers. And so that's why this is so important. You can understand all of the facts about abiding. You can understand all of the facts about what a Christian looks like, what a disciple, uh, a Christian does, from everything that we've studied in the first 15 and now half chapters of the Gospel of John. You can understand all of that intellectually, but if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you'll never see these things actually happen in your life. It's not possible. You'll never be able to be obedient to these things. You'll never even be able to understand how to do these things 
We are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission of God. So let's try to think about this this morning in really simple terms. And listen, I know when we get to talking about the Holy Spirit, we can go a lot of different ways. Our minds can wander and sometimes we can end up really, really confused because God is God and we are not. And I understand that, but I want you to try to think about this in really simple terms. Jesus tells His disciples what must take place, right? He, he begins introducing them to their new purpose. This is all happening in chapter 15 and 16. He's introducing them to their new, their new purpose, their new mission by explaining their need to abide in Him. But then He promises to send them the Comforter. It's not a mistake that Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit as a Comforter after delivering this mission, this purpose, this responsibility to the disciples. It's not a mistake. And so what does this tell us? What does Jesus' use of the, the name Comforter for the Holy Spirit, what does it tell us about abiding and living on mission? I think it's pretty simple. It tells us it's going to be really uncomfortable. It tells us that it may be really difficult, really hard. Frankly, it tells us that it is a task that is beyond anything that you and I have to offer. And so here's my point, and here in lies the problem. Why would Jesus, listen, why would Jesus need to send a comforter if we were already comfortable? If Jesus is calling you and I to a life of comfort, then why would He need to send us a comforter? You see, this leads us into a, 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 a drastically dangerous misconception that is so prevalent in our culture. You see, more eagerly than ever, we are embracing the ideology that we will receive Jesus, we'll be baptized, we'll join the church, and we'll settle in to a comfortable American lifestyle until our body fails us or until Jesus returns. And so our comfort becomes our priority. And every decision we make is about our comfort. Even when it comes to church. right? Every change we implement or every change we oppose is ultimately about our comfort because we've decided that now that I'm saved, I've been called to this retirement Christianity where I can be comfortable and complacent and one day Jesus is going to wrap up this terrible world that hates me and that I hate and that, that I don't want to be a part of. He's going to come back and get me. He's going to call me home and it's all going to be okay. Jesus is going to come back. He is going to wrap this thing up and it is all going to be okay. But the problem is what happens in the middle. The idea of comfortable Christianity is an American idea. It's not a biblical idea. Nowhere in the New Testament are we taught that Christianity will be comfortable. You say, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Well, it wouldn't if Jesus hadn't sent the Comforter. Right? The, the promise of the Gospel is eternal life and the eternal abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that makes what is totally uncomfortable to anyone else comfortable to the believer because they're not relying on themselves, they're relying on the Spirit of God. And yet we have embraced this misconception. We have embraced this idea that I must be comfortable above all else. I can't go on a mission trip. I, I can't share the Gospel with this person. I can't engage in, in, in small group discipleship discussions. I can't disciple someone else one-on-one -on -one because it's going to be really uncomfortable for me. I may not know all the answers. I may not have all the things to say. It's going to be really uncomfortable, so I can't do it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay in my lane. I'm just going to run my course, and I'm just going to wait it out. 
And yet that is totally anti-New Testament gospel. It is anti-Great Commandment. It is anti-Great Commission. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see a thread of this ideology. It's just the opposite. Jesus says, I'm calling you to get uncomfortable. But because it's uncomfortable, it's better for you that I leave. This is why it's better that Jesus would leave. Because Jesus, Jesus, when He was here on this earth, right? He is, he's 100% God and He's 100% man. What does the 100% man mean? Right? He's, con- he's, he's confined physically to His earthly body, right? He's investing in, in 12 disciples and now at this point, 11. But He says, if I go, the Holy Spirit will come not just on you, but unlike it ever had in the history of all the world, the Holy Spirit will come unto you, into you. I will be able to abide in you, and you and me, through this Comforter. And so Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, because I'm calling you to be uncomfortable, and the only way you'll do it, the only way you'll be able to handle it, the only way you'll be able to deal with the hate of this world, the only way you'll be able to love a world that hates you, as I love this world, the only way you'll be able to produce fruit is if I send this Comforter to you. So now, let's look at some very specific things that the Holy Spirit does. Now, verse 8 really gives us an outline for what verses 9 through 11 deal with in more detail. And so, as we begin to look at these verses, it's important for us to, to really define this word, uh, this, this word uh, conviction. It's translated in, in some places conviction. It's a, word, it's a word, frankly, that our English translators across the board really, really struggle with. In the King James, it says that when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin. Some translations do translate it convictions. Others reprove. Others, others maybe even rebuke. Now, again, it's, it's, it's a word the English translations really struggle with in this instance. But, but here, the Spirit of the Word really seems most clearly to lean itself towards God's act of revelation through the Spirit. And so when we're talking about, when we're talking about convicting, it, if we see that in this text, if we, if we see uh, this, this word reprove in this text, really what we're talking about is the Spirit's work of revealing something to us. And so revealing sin to us. Revealing God's righteousness to us. Revealing truth to us. To us, right? It's, it's really this work of revelation, of informing us, of, of showing us, and even we'll see in just a moment, contrasting what is revealed to us, which is where this idea of conviction or a reproving comes in. Now, as we begin in verse 9, we see that this first act of revelation, if you will, the first thing that the Holy Spirit is going to reprove or convict the world over or convict over is, in fact, the world's sin. Now, again, definition of terms is important. So we want to have a proper understanding of sin, especially as it relates to the context here in verse 9. And we have to be really careful here, church. And not just with this verse. We have to be really careful with the way that we think about sin in general. Because there's a real danger of us just thinking as sin, of sin as actions. And actually, I think verse 9 tells us that sin, or reveals to us, in one of the many verses in Scripture that reveals to us, that sin is way deeper. It's way more involved than just our actions. Right now, our actions are sinful, but our actions aren't the root of our sin. Now, I want to, let's think about this for just a moment. 
Because I really don't think we can afford to merely view sin as acts of evil. But I think we have to understand exactly what I believe Jesus is teaching us here, that that more deeply and fundamentally, sin must be understood as this, the rejection of Christ. At the very core, sin is rejecting Christ. Sin is not at the very core the acts you commit. Sin is to reject Jesus. At its very fundamental level, sin is to reject Jesus. You say, well, what about the acts? Well, the acts happen because you've rejected Jesus. right? The acts are a symptom of the rejection of Jesus. So that's why we can talk about sin in terms of rebellion, right? We have rebelled against Christ. We have rebelled against the gospel. And so that rebellion ultimately leads us to commit acts that are not in keeping with Christ, that are not in keeping with the commandments of God, that are not keeping uh, within the confines of the gospel. And so the actions are the symptom. But if we just view sin as actions, then what happens is we trick ourselves into believing that we can actually do something about our sin. And hey, even as Christians, we're guilty of this, right? I mean, think about it. All of us have things we struggle with, right? Right? We all have these vices that, that we're sort of compelled to and we get frustrated with ourselves. Man, why do I keep doing this thing? Why do I keep acting this way? Why do I keep saying this thing or thinking this thing? And then what, we, what, what is our immediate response? Okay, well, I'm just going to do better. Right? I'm just going to change this habit. I'm just going to change this routine. Right? And so all we're doing, right? we're, we, we've got the right idea that what we're doing is wrong. We've got the right idea that it's sinful, but the problem is we're not tracing it back all the way to its source, which is ultimately, if there's an issue where I'm faltering, where I'm failing, where I'm committing acts of sin in my life, then ultimately I need to trace that back to what area of my life am I rejecting Christ in? What area of my life have I not given Christ authority over? Right, Because somewhere in my life I've said, you know what, I'm going to serve this thing instead of Christ. And by serving this thing, it has led me to commit these acts of sin. And so, what does this mean as it relates to the Holy Spirit? As we think about sin, the very root of sin is a choice, right? It's it's, it's very simply a choice where I say I'm choosing something else over Jesus. So now how does the Holy Spirit relate to this in our lives? What does it mean? It means, verse 9 specifically, that the Holy Spirit reveals how deeply and fundamentally the world and all of its people, we talked about the definition of world last week in this text, it's referring to all people, how deeply and fundamentally the world has rejected Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is revealing. So understand what I'm saying. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, it would be impossible for you and I to really see the brokenness of sin in this world. We wouldn't see it. We wouldn't understand that it's there. We wouldn't understand that it's wrong. We wouldn't understand that it's broken. We wouldn't understand that it was sin without the Holy Spirit because by our nature, we are sinful. And so if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, we would look around the broken world and we would just think it was all natural. Right, And so you see, people that don't have the Holy Spirit, they accept sin as natural, right? Because it is natural to us in the flesh. But we're talking about this in terms of the world. It's, it, happens in, it happens in very personal terms too. Right? We, you and I can never see our own sin without 
the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Right again, that's why we have a confusion of terms here because we call it conviction. Right? When you fall under conviction, that's not you finally figuring it out. That's the Holy Spirit showing you what's going on. That's the Holy Spirit showing you what's wrong in your life. That's the Holy Spirit showing you the places, the dark corners of your life where you have rejected Christ's authority over your life. And so we think about this on a very personal level. It's a very core doctrine to our faith as evangelical Christians. The only way, the only way men and women will know that they are sinners is by the convicting work of the Spirit. That's it. I can't plead with you. I can't convince you that you are a sinner. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you, can convict you over your sin. That's it. And and here's, here's the thing that should really liberate us as we think about the mission of God. We don't, if you're a believer, you don't have the responsibility to convict someone else over their sin. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. And the Holy Spirit, I promise you, the Holy Spirit will be faithful to do His job. The only question is, will we be faithful to do ours? And ours isn't the work of conviction. Ours is the work of being a conduit. For the Spirit to work in, for the Spirit to work through, uh, for the Spirit to use in evangelism. And so we put a ton of pressure on ourselves when we think about evangelism or even just discipleship relationships about making sure we say the right thing or do the right thing. And don't get me wrong, it's important. We should be informed, we should be prepared, we should be equipped. But ultimately the responsibility is the Spirit's. The responsibility to convict is the Spirit's. So if you share the gospel and if someone responds, praise God, you saw the work of the Holy Spirit. If you share the gospel and someone doesn't respond, praise God, you can still trust that the Holy Spirit will use that conversation sometime, someplace to bring about conviction. So verse 9, we see that the Holy Spirit reveals the world's sin. But then in verse 10, we see that the Holy Spirit reveals the righteousness of God. Now, Once again, I think we have to be very clear about our definition of terms. What is the righteousness of God? What is this righteousness the Holy Spirit is revealing? I think think the righteousness of God might be understood at least in one sense as the rightness of God. The rightness of God. Now what I mean by this is that God and God alone is the standard of good. That's it. The righteousness of God means to us that God and God alone is the standard of what is right, of what is good, of what is acceptable. It's absolute truth. It's absolute goodness. And here's the thing. This is why the gospel is so important. It's why it's so important for us to study the gospel is because His righteousness has been perfectly revealed in Christ. And so if we want to know what the righteousness of God looks like, we look to Jesus. If we want to understand what the righteousness of God is, then we need to understand Jesus. Now here's the thing. Another misconception among Christians. The world doesn't actually reject the idea of righteousness. Now some of you are thinking that you are totally off your rocker. The world does not reject the idea of righteousness. The issue with the world is that it accepts a relative righteousness. 
Not an absolute righteousness. The world doesn't reject righteousness because we are created in the image of God. And so we have this sort of inner desire, this inner understanding that we must do what is right. But the problem is when the world accepts a relative righteousness, that is, uh, relative righteousness would be what is right in your own mind, right? And so you are establishing your own righteousness, if you will, a righteousness that is right in your own mind. Right? That's happening because it's in our very nature. We, we, we can't reject the idea of right and wrong because it's ingrained in us. As being part of the image of God, as being created in His image, the idea of right and wrong is ingrained in us. But because of the deadly effects of sin, Satan has deceived us into rejecting right, not, not just into rejecting right and wrong, he can't do that because it's in our nature, but what he's convinced us, what he's deceived us into doing is defining right and wrong. So do you see the difference there? Satan doesn't deceive people. He doesn't deceive you and me into rejecting right and wrong. He deceives you and I into thinking that we can redefine what is right and wrong. And so everyone's going to do what is right in their own heart because we have this inner desire to do what is right. Satan, Satan can't, it's, it's beyond his power to change the image of God where we would totally abandon any idea of right. But what he can do, what he did in the garden, right, was that he, he deceived man and woman that what God said was right wasn't actually right. But that they could redefine what was best for them. They could redefine what was right and what was good for them. Now we've said it before, but it bears repeating. If Satan is using the same tactic that he was thousands and thousands of years ago, then at some point... We need to get on to his, onto his game plan, right? At some point we need to figure it out and we need to start saying, okay, what am I going to do to combat what Satan has been doing for thousands of years? If Satan's primary goal is to get me to, to, to redefine good, if he's, if he's imploring us not to obey God, and this is essentially it, right? Satan wants to convince you not to obey God, but to be a God yourself. To be your own God. He's not trying to convince you to deny good. He's trying to convince you to redefine good. And so we need to, we, 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 should, we should have no problem catching on to his tactics. And what we have now as a result of this is a world that has adopted this relative view of righteousness. And it stands in complete rebellion against the absolute righteousness that has been revealed in Christ Jesus. So then as a result, what we have in the Holy Spirit is really this incredible extension of God's grace. He's given us the Holy Spirit to reveal the great divide between His righteousness and our sinfulness. But there's one more important layer that I think we should add here as we seek to fully understand verse 10, and, 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 and that's this. The Holy Spirit not only reveals righteous, righteousness to us, He actually leads us in righteousness. So the Holy Spirit just, doesn't just reveal to, what, to us what's wrong with us. He doesn't just reveal, he does do that. He doesn't just reveal though what we ought to do, what is actually right, what is absolutely right, what is in keeping with God's righteousness, but he also leads us into righteousness. Now by this, especially in this context in John chapter 16, we're primarily talking about the act of justification in Christ. 
Now, again, that's a theological term, hopefully one that's common to you, but if it's not, that's okay. When we talk about justification, we're talking about the act by which God moves a willing person from the state of sin, that's injustice, right, a sinful state, to the state of grace, which is justice. We're talking about the act of salvation when we talk about justification. We're talking about being lost, from going being lost to being found, from being a sinner to being saved, right? In very simple terms, that's what we're talking about in justification. Being justified in Christ. But because of the depth of our own sin, sinfulness, which, we, or which, we're, uh, which verse 9 alludes to, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us that there's no possible way for us to comprehend the absolute righteousness of Christ on our own. Furthermore, there's, there's nothing that you and I can do. There's nothing that we could possibly do to justify ourselves or even to earn justification for ourselves. And so, to stand justified before the Father, in spite of our own sinfulness, is only possible through the cross of Christ. So this is really the revealing work of the Holy Spirit that teaches us this. We are hopelessly sinful. God is eternally righteous. And the only way to be reconciled is through the Lamb of God, crucified, buried, resurrected, returning to the right hand of the Father and sending His Spirit so that you and I can understand this incredible truth. And so we can agree wholeheartedly with the Reformers that justification comes by grace alone through faith alone. But we must also be incredibly clear that without the Holy Spirit's conviction, we will have no recognition of our need for faith. We'll have no recognition of who we are as sinners and who God is as righteous, as the righteous, perfect King of the universe. But now we shift our attention to verse 11. We sort of see this natural outcome of the revelation of sin and the revelation of God's righteousness. So the reality of, of sin and righteousness of God, they've been revealed. Now we see this, this natural progression of things that lead to the Holy Spirit's work of revealing the reality of judgment here in verse 11. Again, we must be careful in our understanding and application of this verse. There's been, there's been many Bible teachers and, and Sunday school teachers and whatever else, small group leaders, preachers, anything else that, that sort of get awry here when we start talking about judgment. Because it's really easy to take this verse this idea of judgment to a place that it doesn't go. You see, the, the judgment that's being spoken of in verse 11 is not a judgment at the end of time. There is a judgment at the end of time. We're not denying that. What we're acknowledging is that this verse isn't talking about a judgment at the end of time. In fact, if you see, it's actually written in the past tense. This is a judgment that has already occurred. It's a, it's a judgment that's already been decided. Very specifically, Jesus is speaking about the judgment of the ruler of this world. He's talking about the judgment of Satan. Now here's the really good news for those of us here in the 21st century reading this verse. We know that this judgment has already happened. We know that Satan is a defeated foe, that the ruler of this world was convicted at the cross and sentenced through the resurrection. And so without a doubt, there is still a final judgment to come. Yes, every rebellious sinner will stand before God and will answer for their crimes. However, the ruling of that judgment is not in doubt. It's not in doubt. The judgment has already been decided. Satan has been convicted. He has been sentenced. 
We're just awaiting God to act fully and finally and eternally on that conviction. Now here's the thing. If we're really honest, sometimes it feels like God's judgment is a character trait that will make Him less appealing to the world. We deal with this all the time. You've probably struggled with this. At least, at the very least, you've heard Christians talk about this. We even see people who profess to be Christians that go light on God's judgment because we're afraid that it, that it does something to, to hamper the, uh, the, the way that the world would, would be drawn to God. This fear that God's judgment will prevent the world from receiving Him or believing in Him is really a symptom of of trying to isolate one of God's attributes from the rest of His attributes. God is judge. It's one of His attributes. And if we isolate His judgment from the rest of His attributes, then it does seem very unappealing. It's hard for us to comprehend how how am I going to tell a world that God is going to judge them. But here's the thing. All of God's attributes, every one of them, work in concert with one another. They never work in spite of one another, and they never work in contradiction to one another. His attributes are always working together. And and really to understand what I'm saying, thinking about the attribute of judgment is, is one of the easier ways to illustrate this or to understand this. So let's think about it this way. Everyone wants to believe that God is good. I say that very generally. Maybe not everyone, but most people want to believe that God is good. And this is where the real issue comes in. They fear that a God who judges cannot be a good God. A God who condemns and sentences sinners to everlasting eternal punishment cannot be good. But there's a fundamental flaw in that train of thought. You cannot have a good God without having a God who judges sin. It can't happen. If you want a God who does not judge sin, then you want a God who is not good. You want a God who is not righteous. We might say it like this. The judgment of God is the vindication of His goodness. The only way we can know that He is good is because we know that He is judge. You see, a God who refuses to judge evil, who refuses to hold rebels accountable, and who refuses to punish sin cannot ultimately be a good God. You would never call a parent who willfully allows their child to continually and consistently disobey and put themselves or others at danger a good parent. You would never be like, man, their kids just do whatever they want. They're such a great parent. Do you see that big one almost kill that little one? They're such good parents. We would never say that. But then we want to look at God and we want to say there's no way He can be good if He punishes His children. There's no way He can be good if there's some level of accountability. We cannot picture God as good if we don't understand that He will not allow His creation to go on for eternity willfully disobeying Him and putting itself at harm. Simply put, turning a blind eye to evil is not good. It's cruel. And so if we do not accept God as judge, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that we would serve a cruel God that would allow crime to go unpunished, that would allow His creation to be put in danger because of disobedience and rebellion. So verse 11 makes it incredibly clear. God is a God of judgment. 
His judgment is final. The ruling has been handed down for the prince of this world. Satan is defeated and it's by the Holy Spirit that we are able to understand the necessity of God's judgment and the verdict against Satan. And it's a warning to us because until we have received Christ, we are guilty with Satan. But that's why that justification that we talked about a moment ago is so incredibly important. It's fundamental in the Gospel. It's the act of salvation because we say, you know what? Lord, I am guilty of sin. I do deserve judgment. But I also understand by the illumination, by the truth, by the revelation of Your Holy Spirit that in spite of my sin, I can stand justified before You because of the Lamb of God. Because of Your Son. And so this brings us to our conclusion this morning in verses 12-14 through where we see this final essential contribution of the Holy Spirit to our lives as we live on mission. He reveals sin. He reveals righteousness. He reveals the reality and the truth of God's judgment. But He also guides His disciples in truth. The Holy Spirit guides disciples in truth. To put it very plainly, the Holy Spirit serves the mission of Jesus just as Jesus has said repeatedly in John's Gospel that He is serving the will of the Father. Now this tells us that the Godhead is united in purpose and mission. What we see in these verses is that the Holy Spirit is glorifying the Son by teaching Christians even more about the truth of God than what Jesus could have possibly taught or what He could have possibly shared verbally in His earthly ministry. Now Jesus did indeed come and teach, but when He returned to heaven, He sent the One that would continue to teach, the One that would continue to reveal, the One that would continue to provide understanding and enlightenment and and illumination of the truths that He had already taught. Now, when we see in these verses that that the Holy Spirit is glorifying the Son by teaching Christians even more about the truth of God than what was possible before, Jesus is is telling us that, that, listen, I came, I I told you ultimately everything that you would need, no doubt. right? We, We believe that God's Word is final, that it's full, that it's complete, that it's everything that we possibly need. But what He's saying is, listen, you won't be able to understand the depths of all of the truth that I've shared. You won't be able to understand the depth of the truth of Scripture unless I send this Holy Spirit to lead you in truth, to guide you through it, to walk you through it, to to reveal to you what is being taught. Now, we can understand the Bible historically. We can understand it scientifically. We can understand it grammatically. And we can do all of that on our own. There are a number of scholars who are not Christians that understand the Bible in all of those terms. But we can never understand the deep spiritual truths that the Bible communicates without the guiding work of the Holy Spirit. So we see this very important truth when it comes to the mission of God. The Holy Spirit not only compels us to go, right? Not only compels us to live, but reveals what we must communicate as we go. What we must communicate as we live. It brings us back to this idea of progressive revelation that's come up a few times over the last few weeks. Remember I talked about it in terms of a ladder. We could also talk about it in terms of a stepping stone. 
Right? You, you might not always see the end of the sidewalk, but what you're doing is you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit. You're in God's Word. You're studying. You're learning. You're growing. And, and every time you pick up a foot, there's a, a, a footstone for your foot to land on. And so you pick up the next foot, and there's another footstone for your foot to land on. And you're just, you're just walking the walk, right? And as you walk the walk, you're talking the talk. And sometimes you may know the outcome, but a lot of times we won't know exactly where God is leading us. We won't know the final destination, but we'll see the pieces coming together one at a time, one at a time. It's progressive revelation. That progressive revelation is happening through the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're just trusting Him. We're just leaning on Him. We're saying, God, wherever You lead, I'll follow. I don't need all the steps. I just need the next step. Just show me what to do next, Lord. Show me who to talk to next. Show me who to love next. Show me who to disciple next. And so again, this truth should alleviate a great deal of fear in our attempts to do evangelism and to make disciples. Because your effectiveness, I've said this, but it's right where this, uh, where this passage brings us back to. It's brought us full circle. Your effectiveness on mission for God depends 100% on the Holy Spirit. Your effectiveness does. But your willingness depends on you. And here's the problem, church. We get it backwards. We get it backwards when we think about obedience. We wonder whether God wants to use us and we doubt whether or not we'll be effective. Do you see the problem? Now, unless I'm on my own this morning, and I'm the only one that's ever felt this way, I imagine most of us have this in common. Our greatest reservation about being obedient to God is we doubt whether or not God wants to use us, and we doubt whether or not we will be effective. And it's the exact opposite of the way Jesus is teaching His disciples to view their relationship with Him. Effectiveness isn't your responsibility. So you don't have to doubt whether or not you'll be effective. Effectiveness is the responsibility of the Spirit. Willingness is the responsibility of the believer. I promise you God is willing to use you. If He wasn't, He wouldn't have saved you. He is willing to use us. Are we willing to be used? By the time we come to the end of these verses, we see that if we willingly obey the mission of God as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, then our work will be Spirit-led work where Christ is glorified. But if we neglect the Holy Spirit, then our work becomes man-led. And our work begins to glorify man. And so there's a, two, there's a really sharp contrast between these two outcomes. And it's possible for whole churches and certainly for individual Christians to fall on the wrong side of this equation. You see, when Christ is glorified, it results in salvation. When we're following the Holy Spirit, when we're leaning on Him, when we're trusting Him for effectiveness, the only thing we're bringing to the table is a willingness and we're trusting His effectiveness. When that happens, Christ is glorified and it results in salvation. When we get it the other way around, and we think effectiveness is dependent upon us, and we start doing things, then all of a sudden, man is glorified. And when man is glorified, it quite simply leads to the exact opposite of salvation, which is eternal damnation. And it brings us back to that idea of judgment. Satan's e eternal destination, his eternal conviction for being the corrupt ruler of this world. Listen, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I can know God. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I can know ourselves. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I can live on mission together for God, for His glory. And it's only 
because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as, as, we, as we close this morning, I, I just want to quite simply ask you the question, how have you and how are you experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Because it should be consistent among every believer. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit ought to be working. He may be working in the area of convicting you over sin. In fact, maybe right now is the first time you've ever really felt true conviction over your sinful state. And so right now, the Holy Spirit is working to reveal that to you. And inviting you to believe in Jesus. Inviting you to fall down on your knees and say, you know what, God, you are right and I am wrong. You are righteousness and I am in rebellion. And the only way that I might be justified before you is through your Son, Jesus. Man, that is salvation. That is to the glory of God. And may today be the day of salvation for you. But maybe even this morning, God has, through His Spirit, been revealing to you His righteousness. And though you are a believer, there are areas where you are failing drastically. You are missing the mark by a mile. You feel tired, you feel frustrated, you feel exhausted, and you say, I just don't know how I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. But this morning, as God has revealed His righteousness to you, as He has revealed the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're finding comfort in the Comforter. And you're able to say, Lord, you know what? I know that effectiveness is not my responsibility. And so this morning, I surrender all parts of my life to the work of the Holy Spirit. I surrender all parts of my life submitting to seeing the Holy Spirit effective in every corner of my being. And may we understand the reality of judgment. May the Holy Spirit remind us day in and day out that we face a defeated enemy. We aren't left to wonder what will happen. We know what will happen. The result is not in question. It is decided. And I pray that for everyone in this room, you sense the Holy Spirit leading you in all truth. You're growing in wisdom and knowledge and discernment and maturity. Right? That the act of justification is leading to the act of sanctification in your life where you are being matured in Christ. You are becoming a more faithful, abiding disciple. And so as Rebecca comes this morning, I want to ask you to stand with me. And it may seem simple, and maybe it is. But I just want to encourage you this morning as we pray together and as we sing together, would you just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? If the Spirit is convicting, respond to that conviction. If the Spirit is encouraging, respond to that encouraging. If He's calling you to go, answer the calling. And so as I pray, if you need to come, come. If you need to bow where you're at, bow where you're at. If you need to talk to me, if you need to talk to somebody, grab somebody and talk to them. But as we pray together, let's just follow. Let's lean on the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to You this morning, we come to You acknowledging simply this, that You are God and that we are not. That You are absolute righteousness and that in our humanity we are prone to sinfulness. We are by our very nature sinful. And so Lord, as we lean on You this morning, as we turn to Your Spirit, Lord, would You convict us? 
Would You do this work of revelation that, that Your Word promises that You will do through Your Holy Spirit? And will You reveal to us the depths of our own sin? Lord, before anything else, reveal to each one of us the depths of our personal sin. Lord, if there's one that's never repented of their sin and believed in You for salvation, may today be the day. May this be the moment. But Lord, even for Christians, as we find ourselves stumbling, as we find ourselves falling back on old habits and we're frustrated and we're burdened, Lord, remind us that the root of our sin is not the actions we commit. The root of our sin is our rejection of Your Son, of your son Jesus in some part of our lives. And so for every believer in this room who has been reminded by the work of the Holy Spirit this morning that there is an area in our life where we have rejected the authority of Your Son Jesus, Lord. May we repent of that. May we turn from that rejection and we may, may we give Your Son all authority over all parts of our life. And Lord, may we not be fearful of judgment. May we not be concerned about Your judgment, but may we be encouraged by the simple fact that You are judge. And because You are judge, we can know that You are good. And because You are judge, we can have confidence that the ruler of this world has already been judged, he's already been defeated, he's already been sentenced, and the outcome is not up for dispute. And so Lord, because of that hope, may we be compelled to follow You to be led by Your Spirit in all truth. That we would take Your Word, we would read it, we would understand it, and we would obey it as we embrace the incredible gift of the Comforter who You sent to us that we might be willing to be uncomfortable for Your glory. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person when you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule. There's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus.